2: It's the South's biggest deal for AJC podcast listeners. For a limited
0: time, subscribe and you'll get digital access to the AJC for $1.99 per week for life. As long as you keep your subscription, that's our sports and politics coverage, breaking news and in-depth investigations, food and dining and more from ajc.com every day for life. You'll also unlock access to our app, exclusive films, events and newsletters. Subscribe now by going to ajc.com/start. That's ajc.com/start for new subscribers only.
3: You're listening to Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to ajc.com/news/breakdown. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our reporters and ask questions about our story.
1: Previously, on breakdown,
0: he is not a stereotype. He's not a caricature of a Southern vigilante racist
2: that
1: he's been made out
2: to be. Tonight, it's a black male, not wearing a shirt, got tattoos on his arms, and apparently looks like maybe light colored shorts.
3: Okay, you said no shirt and light colored shorts.
2: Looked like yes, yeah, a black and white. It's an infrared camera, but looked like light colored shorts. Um and uh, tattoos, the same guy that was over there about a week and a half, two weeks ago. The guy had been seen in the English house several times before, all on video. The McMichaels were aware of all this. This was what was in their head, not the narrative you're hearing, which is, ah, there's a black man running in our neighborhood. Let's go trap him and shoot him. It's far from that.
1: Welcome back to Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We are covering the case involving Ahmad Aubrey, the 25-year-old black man who was fatally shot February 23rd just outside of coastal Brunswick, Georgia. He was killed by three shotgun blasts fired by Travis McMichael after a chase that was started by his father, Greg McMichael. Roddy Bryan, a neighbor, also joined in. All three men are charged with malice murder and other offenses, and all three remain in jail. In our last episode, we let the lawyers for father and son McMichael state their case and to give their takes on their clients' prior good deeds. Since then, prosecutors have filed some interesting court motions in which the state appears to be showing its hand. And there's also what to do with the elephant in the room, Roddy Bryan's contention that he heard Travis McMichael utter a vile racial epithet as he stood over the dying Arbery. This is one of the most explosive elements of the case, and there's a chance jurors will never hear about it. We'll get to that later. First, the state has put the three defendants on notice that it will seek what's pretty much become the ultimate punishment here. In Georgia, someone convicted of murder can get three possible sentences. One, life in prison, although that really means there will be no chance for parole until at least 30 years are served behind bars. Two, life in prison without the possibility of parole. And three the death penalty. Back in the day, it seemed like Georgia's electric chair barely had time to cool off before the next execution. But capital punishment here has become almost non-existent. Over the last six and a half years, only one person has been sentenced to death in Georgia. That was Tiffany Moss, who starved her 10-year-old stepdaughter, Imani, to death. I sat through every minute of that trial. It was awful. Here's the sentence being imposed by the judge.
0: Ma'am, with respect to count one, the jury has found you guilty of murder and other counts contained in
2: the indictment against you. They have considered the circumstances surrounding that murder and found that aggravating circumstances exist. With respect to count one, ma'am, I impose a
0: sentence of death.
1: The trial was highly, highly unusual because Moss acted as her own lawyer and did pretty much next to nothing for her defense. And hers was the only death sentence since March 2014. That means the de facto ultimate punishment here has become life without parole. In a recent court motion, state prosecutors said if a murder conviction is obtained, they intend to seek punishment that would allow the judge to impose a life without parole sentence against both of the McMichaels and Bryan. Greg McMichael, if you'll recall, is 64 years old. Roddy Bryan is 50. Travis McMichael, 34. Once again, I'm joined by my colleague, Asia Burns. We've had a couple of interesting interviews about the legal strategies in this case.
3: We talked to two people who really seem to know their stuff.
1: Indeed, we did. In one motion, state prosecutors are asking trial judge Timothy Walmsley to bar the defense from introducing bad character evidence about Ahmad Arbery. This includes any mention of his prior convictions, such as one for carrying a gun onto school property, another for shoplifting. It also includes any prior encounters Arbery had with law enforcement.
3: They also want to keep out any mention that Arbery was on probation at the time of his death, and they want to exclude any medical records about his mental health. During the probable cause hearing, GBI agent Richard Dial testified that Arbery had been treated for a mental illness that caused hallucinations.
1: That motion notes that none of the defendants knew Arbery prior to February 23rd.
3: And it says, quote, thus any evidence regarding his character, prior convictions, or his mental health are irrelevant and inadmissible as to the issues in this case, including the issues of self-defense.
2: That's called a motion in limine, And the general rule is the victim's character is, ne- is never an issue in a criminal trial. So I think what they're doing is just making sure that it's brought out there and specifically ruled on.
1: That's District Attorney Danny Porter of Gwinnett County in Atlanta suburb. I've known Danny for almost 30 years, and he's been a frequent guest on Breakdown. You gotta remember him, right? I mean, who could forget that voice? Look for Judge Walmsley to set a hearing for this sometime before trial.
3: The state also moved to prohibit the defense from putting into evidence any results from a polygraph test. That refers to one taken by Roddy Bryan. Here's Kevin Goff holding a press conference announcing the results.
0: Contrary to speculation, polygraph examination confirms that William Roddy Bryant was unarmed at the time of the shooting. Contrary to speculation, the polygraph examination confirms that on February 23, 2020, the day of the shooting, William Roddy Bryant did not have any conversation with either Gregory or Travis McMichael prior to the shooting.
1: That would probably be helpful evidence for Bryant at trial. But under Georgia law, polygraph test results are only admitted into evidence if both sides, the prosecution and the defense, agree to it. Yes, of course, that never happens. And the prosecution is telling Judge Walmsley it is not agreeing to it now.
3: The McMichaels and Brian have said they will try to convince a jury that they were engaged in a lawful citizen's arrest, which gave them the right to chase down Arbery that day. The citizen's arrest law says if there is reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion that someone has committed a felony and is escaping, a private citizen may arrest that fleeing suspect.
1: Lawyers for the McMichaels told us Arbery had previously been seen on the security camera video by Larry English. English had a house under construction in Satilla Shores, just a couple of doors down from the McMichaels. He could watch intrusions onto his property from his home a couple of hours away.
3: Here's the neighbor who lived across the street from English's home calling 911 the day Arbery died.
2: Clemson Communications Operator says. Okay. Is a great news out here. There's a guy in the house right now. That house under construction. Okay. Do you, have, do you have your address or the other that house's address? Uh, right at uh, 219 or 220, still drive. And you said someone's breaking into yeah. it right now. It's all open, it's under construction, and he's running right now. There he goes right now. Okay, what is he doing? He's running down the
3: street.
1: The 911 operator then gets down to brass tacks. Okay,
3: that's fine, I'll get them out there. I just need to know what he was doing
2: wrong. Was he just on the premises and not supposed to be? And he's been
1: caught
2: on the camera a bunch before at night. Kind of thing out
3: here. What was he doing wrong?
1: He could have been committing criminal trespass. That's entering, without permission, another person's premises. But there's a big, big caveat. The law says someone has to be doing that, quote, for an unlawful purpose, unquote. So what was the unlawful purpose? The video just shows Arbery walking and looking around inside the house under construction, he didn't take anything. And even if he did commit criminal trespass, which seems like a stretch, that's a misdemeanor under Georgia law. It's not the felony required under the citizen's arrest statute to apprehend a fleeing suspect.
3: But the lawyers for the McMichaels appear to be saying their clients suspected Arbery of burglarizing the home on prior occasions. And burglary is a felony. We also look at statutes that prohibit loitering and prowling. None of them seem to be on point either. Seems like it would be a stretch to apply them to Arbury that day. And, like criminal trespass, loitering and prowling are misdemeanors.
1: To the McMichaels, this began with a lawful citizen's arrest and ended with Travis McMichael firing those shotgun blasts in righteous self-defense because Arbury was charging at him. That's what they say. Here's Greg McMichael calling 911 just before those shots were fired. He's standing in the bed of his son's pickup truck.
2: Nine one one. What's the address your emergency? Uh, I'm out here at Sotilla Shores. It's a white male running down the. Satilla. Where? Where? Where at Satella Shores? I don't know what's wrong. Stop! What the?
3: Is it? Stop! Stop it! Woo, sir. Hello, sir. Sir, where are you at? Of course, Arbery's family and friends, and even noted politicians and celebrities, have called what happened to Arbery a modern-day lynching. Danny Porter doesn't buy the citizen's arrest claim.
2: Well, first of all, under citizen's arrest, the crime has to occur in your presence. And even then, if it doesn't occur in your presence, you have to have probable cause to believe a crime was here. Under no circumstances. Does a black guy running down the street create probable cause, even if you were to credit the previous supposed previous reports of burglaries and something like that. So there was no legal reason for the McMichaels to pursue Armand Aubrey. And uh, I just don't think you can I don't think you can put citizens arrest and this case together.
1: As for self-defense, Porter says this.
2: You know, when Aubrey turned, it's hard to tell what they what they intended to do had he not turned to defend himself. I think the real question is, is let's say Aubrey had never turned around and they had come up on him running. I mean, what was their plan at that point? I don't think we'll ever know
1: that. In another motion, the state is asking Judge Walmsley to let it introduce what's called 404B evidence at trial against the three defendants. So, who do we turn to? Who else but Breakdown's resident legal expert, Atlanta defense lawyer Don Samuel. He explains what 404B evidence is all about.
0: The general rule is that um, when someone is charged with a crime... The basic rule is you can't put in evidence of other crimes the defendant has committed on another occasion. It's considered to be too prejudicial and that the, um, the, the philosophy is, is that jurors will end up convicting the person because he's a bad person as opposed to did he commit the crime. So the basic rule, the fundamental rule is you don't get to, the prosecution doesn't get to put in evidence that the defendant committed another crime on another occasion. But the exceptions almost swallow the rule. Because there are exceptions if for example the other crime that the state wants to introduce proves an element of the crime or if the evidence is introduced not to show he's a bad person uh, is not offered to show um, that he committed you know the same crime once before and got away with it um, but is offered for some other legitimate purpose.
3: Samuel said there are several different ways prosecutors use 404b evidence
0: so I can give you hundreds of examples, but just as one example. Imagine that someone is caught coming into the Atlanta airport and is going through customs, and they open up the suitcase and there's a couple of ounces of cocaine. And the defendant says, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I had no idea. Someone else must have had access to my suitcase and put the cocaine in. Well, in that situation, the prosecution can put in evidence that on 10 prior occasions um, that same defendant was stopped at the airport uh, and was arrested and, and convicted of bringing cocaine into the country. It it belies the defense that the defense is raising that it was accident or it was a lack of knowledge. It's not being introduced to show he's a bad person. It's being introduced to show he's lying when he said he didn't know.
1: And there are other ways prosecutors can use 404 evidence. It can be tattoos that you have, you know, that show, you know, Nazi
0: emblems, for example, perfectly legitimate First Amendment activity. But when the state tries to put that in evidence, the defense is going to cry. That's 404B evidence. The fact that he had a Nazi flag on his, on his shoulder um, shouldn't be admissible. And the prosecution may say, well, you know, the victim in this case was an African-American or a Jew, uh, and therefore the Nazi flag is admissible because it shows his state of mind. It shows the kind of, you know, why he would have the motive or why he has uh, the inclination to commit a murder of, you know, a Jewish person because he's a Nazi.
3: Don't forget... The McMichaels and Bryan cannot be prosecuted for a hate crime in Georgia because that law was passed after Arbery was killed.
1: In legal terms, it's called ex post facto. That means after the fact. And it typically refers to a person committing an act that was only classified as a crime after that person committed it. But from this motion, it's clear that the state believes racial prejudice is part of the defendant's motive to hunt down Arbery and kill him.
3: In the motion, the state says it wants to introduce into evidence two Facebook posts made by Travis McMichael. The first a quote-unquote racial highway video. The second is what they've called a quote Johnny Rebel post, unquote. There is also an unspecified racist text message sent by Travis in March 2019.
1: The state wants to put in the same two Facebook posts against Greg McMichael. They also want to put into evidence racist texts that were extracted from Roddy Bryan's cell phone. You may recall lead prosecutor Jesse Evans talking about that during Bryan's bond hearing.
2: We have a number of text communications that were extracted from this defendant's phone, and they are replete with racist and idiot remarks and communications.
0: Repeatedly, this defendant uses the N-word.
3: Here's Porter again
2: they're introducing it as what's called extrinsic evidence. In other words, it's not a similar bad act. It's, it's evidence that shows something directly related to the elements of the crime charge. And I think here, what it looks like is they're planning on certainly showing motive, but also as I read through it, the thing that occurred to me is they were also trying to negate that idea of citizen's arrest. I think they're trying to attack that they weren't legitimately making a citizen's arrest. Of course, they weren't, but also that they didn't intend to make a citizen's arrest. I think it's, I think they're trying to get the evidence in t- for two tactical reasons. Well, the state never has to prove motive, but it sometimes it helps to the jury. I think they must, uh, what I would say is they must know something about Uh, where the defense is going to be coming from. And they're going to try and negate that issue of citizen's arrest, saying their intent was not to make a lawful arrest. It was to pursue and kill
1: because they're racists. For the record, Bob Rubin, one of Travis McMichael's lawyers, couldn't disagree more.
3: This case is not about race. Um,
0: Mr. Arbery was not targeted because he's black. A lot of people think, well, if you... What's not black, they wouldn't have gone after. that Could be farther from the truth.
3: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a
2: happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting.
1: To your happy place
3: for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
1: Samuel, the criminal defense lawyer, offers these thoughts.
0: If the defendant's claim is self defense, and the prosecution's theory was it wasn't self defense, you killed him because you didn't like his race, um, then I would think that obviously evidence of his prior statements that are indicative of racial animosity would be admissible. Um, It's a close call, frankly, in my opinion, because it just, it is such an emotional topic. Um, It is bound to alienate a good number of the jurors, if not all of them, uh, and and hate the defendant because of it. And the racist comments he makes may so overpower the evidence of self-defense that he might not get a fair trial.
3: Because this is such an inflammatory issue, Samuel said maybe Judge Walmsley should see how the case is unfolding before he decides whether to let such evidence in.
0: I can't tell you at that point in the trial whether it would be admissible. And if a judge were prudent, the judge might not rule on that pretrial and may say, let's see where we are at the point in the trial when you want to introduce that. Let's see where we are. You know, if the evidence is really in equipoise as to what the motivation was, I may let the prosecution put it in because it's truthful, right? He did say it, at least theoretically. Um, so in that situation, I, I could imagine uh, a judge letting it in. But if the evidence is just overwhelming that it's a murder, why put that evidence
1: in? You're just, you're just kind of poisoning the record at that point. In other words, the judge could be giving the defendants good grounds for an appeal that tries to overturn any of their convictions.
0: I, I think, to be precise, it is it would be offered to prove it wasn't self-defense, it was racial hatred. It, it's showing a different reason why the crime... Um, excuse me, Why the shooting occurred. The defense says it was self-defense. I have no hatred to this person. I have no anger at all. I was trying to do a, a citizen's arrest, which is my right and perhaps even my duty. Uh, and the next thing you know, I'm being attacked and I have to defend myself. So that's the defendant's theory. You know, the prosecution's theory is you went after him, you chased him, had nothing to do with you know, protecting the uh, sanctity of the community or protecting property uh, or arresting a a burglar. That wasn't the reason you you went after him. you you were the aggressor and you killed him. And to prove that, we have this evidence that you, in fact are a racist. Um, and you're not interested in protecting, you know private property and making a citizen's arrest for um, supposedly a burglary
3: once again, Samuel said this could be a tough decision for Judge Walmsley for a number of reasons. And it's no small matter either.
0: I think it's a close call. I'll be honest with you. I think it's a close call. Um, because, you know, if, if, the, if the defense has a strong, evi- strong case of a citizen's arrest, if that, in fact, you know, they can put up that evidence, if they can put up that evidence, and they can show that during the course of the effort to make a citizen's arrest, uh, Mr. Arbery, you know, came at him, challenged him, threatened him. Um, then perhaps he has a, a half decent self-defense claim. You know, to, to then add to the mix, well, he's you know used racially pejorative terms in the past. You know, I'll be honest. I think it's a little unfair to the defense if you do that, um, because you're not responding specifically to was there a citizen's arrest that was viable? And I'm not saying there is. I'm just saying if there was, um, and you know, the guy is attacking me. I'm, I have a right to defend myself. The fact that I used racially pejorative words in the past, doesn't strike me as negating that evidence.
1: The fact that three white guys were chasing down a young black man running down the street in their pickup trucks, two of them with weapons, puts race front and center in the case. It permeates it, it saturates it. But injecting racist cell phone texts and social media posts raises it a whole nother level.
3: And, of course... There's what Roddy Bryan said he heard Travis McMichael say as he stood over Arbery.
1: Effing N-word. Let's hit that head on. Remember, GBI agent Richard Dial testified at the preliminary hearing. That's what Bryan told an investigator during one of his interviews. Of course, Travis McMichael's lawyers say they believe Bryan concocted that story because he was trying to strike a deal. Here's Jason Sheffield from our previous episode.
2: He was specifically asked about it. And when we look and now review the
1: discovery in the case, we see that he was so far away from that part of the scene. In his truck, windows up, and the police were literally on scene within seconds. And so from what we can tell, there is nothing to support that not only did Travis say that at that moment, but that Roddy Bryan could ever hear him say anything like that. I recently talked to Brian's lawyer, Kevin Goff, about Reuben and Sheffield's contention. Brian never heard Travis McMichael say what he said he heard. Goff said he stands by Brian's account. I believe my client. I do, Goff told me.
3: The big question is this. Can prosecutors get Brian's highly inflammatory and incriminating accounts of what Travis allegedly said into evidence? it's essentially double hearsay testimony. Here's Don Samuel again, and because he refuses to use the expletive-laden racial epithet, he uses his own inflammatory example.
0: So let's look at the evidence here. You have one person making an out-of-court declaration, and that's Travis, right? Travis says, you're a dirty, rotten bastard, okay? Let's say that's what he says. And that is heard by Roddy Bryant. Um, Travis, at least in theory, is not testifying. Roddy hears the statement and Roddy is not testifying. Roddy then makes a statement to the police and he says to the police, I heard Travis say to Mr. Arbery or you know, to the body, you know, you're a dirty rotten bastard. So how do you overcome what appears to be two levels of hearsay? What Travis said And what Roddy said, neither of whom are going to be witnesses. That's why you have two different hearsay problems, double hearsay.
1: What's also important, Samuel says, is whether the prosecution is putting in Travis's statement to prove what he allegedly said was true, that Arbery was a so-called so-and-so. And And of course, that's not what they're trying to prove at all. It's being offered for some other reason. It's being offered to show Travis's state
0: of mind, trying to prove Travis's um, racially insensitive you know, um, background or whatever.
3: One problem confronting the prosecution is if Roddy Bryan decides not to take the witness stand in his own defense.
0: The problem is is that Roddy's not testifying. And if the policeman were to get on the stand and say, this is what Roddy told me, that is hearsay. Okay? Because what Roddy is saying is, I heard Travis McMichael say X, Y, Z. You're a dirty, rotten bastard. The prosecution is putting in Roddy's statement for the truth of the matter asserted. They are trying to prove that he heard Travis say those things, okay? That's hearsay. That's classic hearsay. And if Roddy's not testifying, I don't see how the prosecution gets that in.
1: There's also this issue with the Sixth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, the Confrontation Clause, it says all accused shall enjoy the right to be confronted with the witnesses against them.
0: Confrontation clause is, is, there's lots of different aspects to confrontation clause. For example, you have a right to be in the courtroom and watch the witnesses testify against you. You have a right to, you know, see the witness not wearing a mask these days. That's part of confrontation clause. Uh, but in this situation, the confrontation clause is very much the same as, as hearsay, that you have the right to cross-examine Roddy and say, you never heard Travis say that. You never heard my client say that. The window was closed. You couldn't possibly, none of that cross-examination comes in because Roddy's not on the stand. And that's what the confrontation clause is designed to protect, is the defendant's right to cross-examine and challenge the veracity of what the declarant said, the declarant being Roddy Bryant. And if you can't cross-examine him, you know, if if Travis's lawyer can't cross-examine Roddy, It's clearly hearsay and it violates the confrontation clause, the right to confront your accusers, even though he's sitting at counsel table next to you. I don't get it. I don't see how the state puts that in evidence.
3: But this won't be an issue if Brian takes the stand, right? Then both the prosecution and the defense can take turns going at him.
1: Right. Problem solved for the state. But most experienced defense attorneys never want to put their clients on the stand unless they absolutely have to. There's just too much risk. Again, I talked to Brian's lawyer, Kevin Goff, about this. I didn't record it, but I took good notes. Old school, right? Here's what Goff said. What is there for Roddy Bryan to testify to? The video speaks for itself. And he said this. The state had a witness in my client, and then they decided to convert him into a defendant. So, for now, it looks like Brian will not testify in his defense but Goff conceded that you never know how a trial will play out. He said he wasn't closing the door on anything. So what if it turns out that Brian does decide to testify and that statement comes in? How damaging would it be? Well, I don't know about
0: for Brian if he says, oh, I was shocked, it was disgusting. I was disgusting, I was terribly offended. I mean, it wouldn't be damaging to him. I don't know if it would be damaging to, to, you know, Father, Greg, I don't know. I don't know what the trial's going to look like at, you know, day 10 or day 15. So it's hard to say. Obviously, it's terribly damaging to Travis under any imaginable circumstance. That's going to be damaging. I mean, how could that possibly be anything other than damaging? Right? I mean, it's just... It it sounds terrible. And it's going to be terribly offensive to everybody on the jury. Everybody. And um, I I think it would really, really um, damage whatever credibility
1: or believability there is with regard to whatever his defense is.
3: Porter gave us some other possible scenarios.
1: One is for the trials to be severed, in other words, for the defendants to be tried separately, like Brian standing trial by himself and the McMichaels having their own trial.
2: There's a case called Bruton versus New York that says that if you bring up the statement of one defendant, then against another, you have to sever the trials because the defendant can't cross-examine his co-defendant so um, that's what you're looking at probably next is some kind of severance motion or they could plead brian out and and his case is automatically severed at that point so there's a lot of options of what they could do it certainly is evidence of the motivation behind the crime but uh, the main thing the only way that i can think of legally is to get that in is to have Bryant testify. That's what he said. That it's not hearsay at all. If a witness heard the utterance from the defendant, that's not hearsay at all.
3: Don Samuel agrees.
0: Obviously, if there's separate trials, you can get it in evidence. You could sever the trials. The prosecution can say, "I want to. I want to try these people separately." Um, and then, and then, um, it would come in at Roddy's trial because what Roddy said is not hearsay at his own trial so they could cross-examine him. Um, It would still be difficult to get it in at Travis's trial unless Roddy becomes a witness for the prosecution at Travis's trial. You know, if they're separate trials, things look differently at that point. Um, Hard to figure out all the different ways that the two separate trials would go that would allow Roddy's out-of-court statement to the police become admissible um, at Travis's trial. But it's possible.
3: During some pretrial motions, the lawyers for both McMichaels often appeared to be working as a team. They filed some joint motions and let Brian's lawyer, Kevin Goff, file his own. That's probably because it was clear that Brian was trying to cut a deal with the state before they decided to charge him. And the McMichaels lawyers may fear that's what Brian will ultimately try to do. But if all three defendants are tried together and Brian decides to take the stand, Samuel said it could get really, really ugly.
0: If Roddy takes the stand at a joint trial um, and testifies that he heard what Travis said, uh, I would assume that um, Greg and Travis's lawyers, the, the hogs and you know Frank and, and Hogue and Bob and Bruughgan would absolutely crucify him. You would have a uh, circular firing squad at that point. You'd have everybody pointing fingers at everybody in the prosecution sits down and just watches you know, watches the Hoags attack Roddy and watches Ruben attack uh, Roddy and watches Roddy's, you know, lawyer, you know, cross exact you know, uh, challenging Travis. You're the bad guy, not my client. And, you know, at that point, the DA just sits back and watches the show.
1: I know, I know. We have gone down into the weeds of legalese on this, but that's what breakdown does from time to time. And in this case, there's good reason for it.
3: The issues raised here before the trial could very well determine the outcome of the trial.
1: Exactly. Okay, about the trial. We still don't have a trial date because of the coronavirus pandemic, but just recently, Harold Melton, the Chief Justice of the Georgia Supreme Court, signed an order allowing the resumption of jury trials. I think getting prospective jurors to show up for duty at courthouses across the state during a deadly pandemic will be an enormous challenge. The Chief Justice said it will take at least a month before something like that happens, probably no earlier than mid-November. That's given the time it takes to send out summonses for prospective jurors to appear. But a mountainous backlog of important cases demands it, he said. Here's Melton during a recent emergency meeting of the Judicial Council of Georgia. He talks about a public service announcement campaign that's about to get underway.
3: There's
2: this intangible of getting buy-in that's really critical as we move forward to the jury trial. And the PSA that's coming right along, we've we've raised over $100,000 so far. Uh, more than that. We're, we're looking towards production relatively quickly to urge people to understand that they're needed to come into jury trials and the,
1: the courts have provided for them to do so safely. Melton says it's up to local jurisdictions to come up with plans that ensure the safety of prospective jurors and to those showing up in court. And no trials can begin before that happens, he said. So we'll see. We don't know how many other cases stand in line ahead of the one against the McMichaels and Bryan, or how many cases Judge Walmsley, who presides in nearby Savannah, must handle before he gets to the Arbery case. What I do know is that Walmsley has set bond hearings for father and son McMichael on November 12th. As we told you in our last episode, that could be quite a hearing. Next, on Breakdown.
2: I I think it's going to be a more difficult case than people think it is.
1: As always, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back after the upcoming bond hearings for sure. Please, please stay safe during this pandemic. Practice social distancing and wear a mask when you're in a crowded area. It's now past time to get that flu shot. I've had mine. What are you waiting for? Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin.
3: You've been listening to Breakdown, hosted by Bill Rankin. Produced by Asia Simone Burns and Bill Rankin. Edited by Jennifer Brett. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Ewan. Sound design by Asia Simone Burns. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, Monica Richardson, and Pete Corson. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous seven seasons of Breakdown.